we hear coaches talk about mental toughness. We talk about the mental game. I think coaches for the most part understand that the mental game is important. But like you said, we do a lot of talking around it. So let me also clarify that the mental game is more than just motivational speeches. So what I see a lot of is coaches will say, uh, we're going to talk about the mental game today, or I want to work on my mental game. And they'll go listen to a motivational speaker. And that has a place like we, we do need to, there is value in that. We do need to be motivated at times. Um, and it kind of pumps you up, but like you said, we're lacking the actual strategies like, okay, I want to um, be more focused here. So I'm going to tell myself to be focused and I'm going to just yell at my athletes. You need to be focused. Why are you not focused? Well, what are some actual strategies that you can help them <laughs> that they can practice? Welcome to the Coaches Club Podcast, powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training. I'm your host, Luke Gromer, and every week we're bringing you conversations with coaches and leaders in sport that will help you grow as an effective teacher and transformational leader so that you and your team can reach your potential. Coaches, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Megan Bunning to the Coaches Club podcast. Dr. Bunning is a former Division I softball coach from FSU, Coastal Carolina, and the University of Mississippi. She's a member of the University of South Carolina's Athletic Hall of Fame and was named to the Southeastern Conference Women's Legends class in 2017. After her coaching career, she moved into academia, publishing in the sports psychology and coach education fields. Her research line and focus involve examining the intersection of sports strategies and education. As a certified mental performance consultant, she enjoys focusing her instruction and research specifically on the use of mental performance techniques to enhance coaches' and game officials' performance. In our conversation today, we talk about the helping skills coaches need, reflecting and growing, practical strategies to build mindfulness and mental performance, and how self-fulfilling prophecies often play out in sports. Before we hop in, I want to tell you about the Coaches Club community. Too many coaches are isolated and unsupported in their coaching. Most coaches simply don't have a support system of other coaches that are committed to growth around them, nor do they have anybody providing coaching for them. The Coaches Club community is a community for coaches that want to grow. It consists of several things. The first is weekly Zoom meetings. These Zooms will consist of book club meetings where we'll study through different books related to coaching, starting with the Coach's Guide to Teaching, master classes, these will be a deep dive into one specific topic, roundtables slash film sessions. These will be open discussions and or film reviews of each other's film and Q&As with podcast guests. The membership also includes a private podcast feed where you'll be able to access the replays right from your podcast app in addition to accessing them online. A few other valuable things you'll have access to will be a community-wide and sport-specific group me, as well as quarterly one-on-one -on -one calls with me where we can talk about your personal growth as a coach and review film of your coaching. If you're interested in learning more or scheduling a call to talk about joining, go to coachesclub.community. And coaches, don't forget to grab your spot in the third round of book clubs covering the Coach's Guide to Teaching. The book clubs are four weeks long and cover chapter three from the book, which dives into improving our feedback. Spots are filling up, and I'd love for you to hop in before the next round kicks off. The cost is $25, which is primarily to ensure that those who sign up are committed to the book club, which just creates a better experience for everyone. But if you sign up and you're not satisfied with the value you've received after the first two weeks, just let me know and I'll refund your money. You can catch a sneak peek of the book clubs in bonus episodes two and three, which include a guest appearance by Doug Lamove. If you want to learn more or sign up for the next round, go to cgtbookclubs.com or click the link in the show details. There's only 12 spots per book club, so grab yours before they're gone. And as always, if you're already on my email list, check your inbox for the weekly email and a link to download the podcast notes from this episode. If you're not on my email list and you'd like to get a copy of the podcast notes, go to coachesclubpod.com, drop your email in the form, and you can download the notes from this episode or any episode. Now to my conversation with Dr. Megan Bunning. Enjoy the episode. All right, coaches, really excited to welcome uh, Dr. Megan Bunning to the podcast today. Uh, Dr. Bunning is a teaching specialist at Florida State University for the FSU Coach Program. Uh, Dr. Bunning, I'd love if you just started off by telling us a little bit about the FSU Coach Program, uh, what it is and, and why it started. 
Yes. So FSU Coach is, the full name would be FSU Coach Interdisciplinary Center. And so we are situated within the College of Education at Florida State University. Dr. Tim Baghurst is the director. And then right now it's just pretty much he and myself. Um, Dr. Dr. Baghurst was hired, I think, two years ago because FSU Coach, uh, excuse me, Florida State didn't have any type of coach education. And within the last, I'd say now 12 years or so, the field of coach education has really grown. And so we saw this opportunity, you know, with you being a teacher yourself, a teacher coach, you know, you and I had a conversation about there really, you really didn't know about a degree that could help more specifically with your coaching. So the Dean of the College of Education, Dr. Damon Andrew, who is big time name in the, in the sport management field said, hey, there's an opportunity here with so many teachers that we get into the College of Education that also coach, we have the opportunity to provide more formal education. So he wanted to start this coach education program. And so enter Tim Baghurst came in and has developed uh, we started out as a graduate a graduate certificate program, so you could get a graduate certificate in athletic coaching. And just this summer, we are launching our first master's degree in athletic coaching. And all, both, both of those programs are fully online, and so you can take them from anywhere. And coming down the pipe in the next couple of years, once we get the master's degree up, we'll do a PhD in athletic coaching for those that want to go on and become faculty and have degrees in the actual field that the degree is from. So uh, just in, just there is no other coach education program within the state of Florida and very few within the Southeast. So that's how FSU Coach came to be. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. It's a great story. It's definitely obviously a huge need. And I, I believe I saw, I, th- I think we had an exchange on Twitter where you mentioned one of the classes that you're going to be teaching, uh, I believe this fall, around coach well-being and wellness. Uh, will you t- tell me a little bit about that class? Like, why is that such an important topic for coaches? And what do we need to be considering when we are talking about that? Yeah, so I'm really glad that you brought that up. I actually just got goosebumps thinking about it because uh, when I interviewed for this FSU coach position, I was asked, you know, what is, what is something you think coaches are lacking? And I know that now I have a We'll talk about this later, but I have this background in sports psychology, right? So coming kind of through that field and being in the game myself, I realized we're, we're like counselors and we are not equipped. First, we can't call ourselves that, right? But we're not equipped to deal with a lot of the things that athletes bring to the table or even just kind of dynamics with our staff. So during my interview, I mentioned, I think coaches need to be uh, taught some basic counseling skills. So in the conversations with uh, Tim Backhurst, who again is the director, um, you know, he agreed and he said, I think that's great. He's really giving me free reign to develop these courses. And so we put together a course that's going to be called Coaching 360. And it will actually first run in the spring of 22 because it takes time for these courses to get approved. Uh, So what Coaching 360 is going to look at, it brings in my uh, passion for teaching coaches kind of these basic, now we'll call them helping skills. So teaching them and you're going to, the coaches in those courses will learn how to, how to listen, how to respond, how to uh, recognize when there's a deeper issue and they need to refer and seek additional help. And then we're bringing in also some of Dr. Baghurst's Uh, areas of interest in these hidden disabilities. So we have athletes that have these disabilities that may not present themselves like uh, athletes not being able to hear fully, Uh, ADD, ADHD, you know, all those kinds of things. And how do we equip coaches to be able to better handle when they get into those situations? So Coaching 360 is going to be this mesh of Uh, basically helping skills and looking a little bit deeper into some of these special athletes that they have coming through their programs. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I like the name for it too. Just, uh, yeah, a full view of it. Can we, would you talk some more about those helping skills? What are maybe some of those helping skills that one, either coaches have, coaches typically lack or maybe helping skills that traditionally in the sports context are frowned upon 
Sure. So this kind of gets back into some of the research, my early research. I'm a big proponent of, and if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see me talk about this a lot. It's we need to learn ourselves how to not only, we always talk about giving feedback. You need to learn how to give feedback. But the other side of that is we need to learn how to receive it. And so if, if we as coaches cannot receive feedback in a non-defensive position, then we're going to shut out a lot of things, right? And so uh, we, I want to start with the helping skills that teach coaches how to not only give that feedback in a way that athletes are going to be more responsive uh, and be responsive you know, per different athletes, right? We can't communicate the same way to everybody. So learning how to approach those situations and then also how do we as coaches better receive feedback and recognize when, hey, I'm feeling defensive. This must mean there's something that is either triggering me to feel this way or I feel like they see a weakness and I feel like I've got to defend myself. So how do we how do we get past that, break those kind of defense mechanisms down and really hear the message for what it is so that we can take value from it. So that's a big piece of the helping skills for me because I see it as this communication piece. Uh, so, so that's really uh, right now, if, if, as you asked me this and I haven't taught the course yet, that's kind of number one on my list. Mm. Yeah. I, I think that's so important to start with the coach. Like we can't really help unless we have a level of self-awareness about what's happening in ourselves and maybe some of those things that are triggering us, you know, especially within a context like sports, that's so emotionally charged. It's so dynamic and like constantly changing. And so to be able to help, help the kids or the, the young adults, the adults that we're leading, you know, like you said, there has to be an awareness of what's going on inside ourselves. And I love that too, what you said, just being willing to receive receive feedback. Will you, will you talk a little bit more about that as far as you know, what should coaches be doing or, or how or where should coaches be going to try to get feedback to help them improve? You know, especially when you get into things at the youth level or even the high school level, oftentimes coaches don't have anyone coaching them. And so what are ways that coaches can get feedback, reflect, just make, make a habit of getting better? Yeah. So, and this, I know this is going to lead into another conversation. So I'll start first with kind of one thing that we do or that we're doing in FSU coach is we are teaching our students how to network and how to map out mentors. So you can identify mentors for, uh, you, don't, you don't necessarily have to have like one mentor, right? There may be different areas of your coaching career or even just your life in general where you may see the need for two, three mentors. So how do you make those connections and network? That is something that as a young coach myself, I mean, I was 24 when I first got into coaching. So I was right off the field myself. I'd played a year pro and you know, step right into the coaching, uh, coaching shorts for us, but it, I didn't understand the value of networking and I hear coaches call it playing the game. And I think some, I think you got to get rid of that terminology. It's about networking and finding the folks that you trust, that you admire. All right. So there's that piece of it. And then, and, and sometimes it's about making those help, having someone there to help make those connections. Hey, I know so-and-so, right. But then there's this piece of self-accountability. So maybe you're in a situation where you, you just don't know who a good mentor would be yet. You haven't established your network. It can take years sometimes to establish that network and really feel comfortable in it. So you have to start with yourself. Like what can you as the coach do? And one of the biggest uh, pieces of uh, information is yourself. So video yourself. And, and I talk about this a lot to other folks is, you know, as coaches, we video our athletes all the time and we do video analysis. So why are we not watching ourselves? You know, we're putting so much focus on the athlete, but you can take some of that time away, train the camera on yourself or catch yourself in the frame and notice 
What are your nonverbal behaviors? How is your body language in that moment? Is what you said, did you say it in a way that you meant to say it? Is that really what you meant? And how was it perceived? Because you can see what's going on with the athletes too and in, in their response. So I'm a big proponent of taking the time to watch yourself. And so once you get into that, then here comes that helping skills and learning how to receive feedback. You've got to remove yourself from the evaluation. So it's not Megan watching Megan and then Megan judging everything. So we've got to teach coaches, how do we see what we see for what it is and remove our judgment and our evaluation so we can actually be present in that moment. So that gets into mindfulness. So teaching coaches how to be mindful. So I don't know if that kind of answers your question, but that's where I see a big piece of it. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really powerful. And I think one of the things that's kind of baked into what you said is that we watch film of our athletes and our team because we're trying to evaluate their performance. Hopefully we're trying to evaluate their learning, but I don't think we often view coaching as our performance. Like we're not looking at ourselves as performing when we're coaching, but in fact, that's absolutely what we're doing. And so like we expect our athletes to be continually learning and growing and trying to get better and improve their performance. But often we're neglecting to even reflect on or evaluate our own performance. You know, I'm coaching a team of, of 10 year olds right now in basketball. And I've recorded a lot of my practices. Actually, I haven't spent a lot of time going back and watching them, but I, I plan to do it. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit nervous to do it though. Cause like you said, you know, like video doesn't lie and to try to remove yourself and not be as judgmental towards yourself when you mess up or something, I think is um, going to be a little bit challenging for me, but I'm excited to do it. So yeah, I, I just think that's an important shift too mentally. Like, okay, when I coach, this is my performance and I've got to figure out how to get better at it. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. And I think, you know, you hit it on the hard part about it. the one, there are two kind of barriers I see are obstacles. I see, you know, the time. All right. So we've got to actually make time to go do it. But if you make that time and it doesn't have to be 30 minutes, an hour, it can be five, 10 minutes where you have the time. Cause you want to give yourself that, opportunity, not only view what you're doing, but to reflect for that, for that hot second. Right. So there's time as an obstacle, but if it's important to you, you'll get it done. And then there's that, like we said, the personal, the personal response, that emotional response. And I think that goes into, to also, when you think about teaching athletes, how to receive feedback, by you feeling uncomfortable by watching yourself, you're putting yourself in the athlete's shoes. So you're kind of in the sandbox with them. And so learning how, how does Luke, the coach, sit back and say, all right, we're going to put clear, we're going to take my biased glasses off, my, not, my judgmental, my evaluative glasses off. I'm not going to evaluate myself. I'm not going to judge myself. And when I feel myself doing that, I'm going to make a conscious effort to stop. I'm going to redirect. All right. So I'm going to go into this and I'm going to watch for a specific thing. All right. So you maybe wanted to kind of review like one play, one action. And so you do that. And here's the cool part. Like when you get really comfortable with this and you have athletes, even like with 10 year olds, I think this would be really neat. You take a clip and you have evaluated yourself or you've reviewed it and you put it out to your athletes and you say, all right, let's take a look at me at coach. And tell me, what did, what did you think I was saying here? Or what did you think I meant? And let them give you another piece of that um, critique. So you can see, because there's a, there's a disconnect between how we think we're acting and the perception. And the perception piece is what's powerful, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, a great idea, a powerful example. Yeah, and I just think it's so powerful to share or share and model to your athletes. Like I'm here to grow too. It's, you know, if we're not modeling growth and making mistakes and responding to them, reflecting, I think it's really hard for them to take us seriously when we ask them to do the same. Would you talk a little bit about that? Maybe modeling the importance of it and 
maybe where, where coaches go wrong with it and how we can do a better job of it? I often wonder if coaches kind of forget. Hmm. We forget that modeling behavior. I mean, that's back in theory, you know, in social cognitive learning theory. And, um, and so that's part of, let me just plug again for coach education. That's part of what we try to bring to the tables. We try to bring back in some of that theory so you can see, hey, y'all, this is grounded in years worth of research. So how do we make that work for us, right? So I think sometimes we let our emotions get to us. And that's part of kind of where I deal with in the mental performance world is how do we control those emotions, manage those emotions so that like we've been talking about, I can see the situation for what it is. I've got to remove that emotion, right? And so when you get into modeling behavior, I think for coaches that maybe have children in the house, it's a little bit easier because you know, like I have a three-year-old out there. I know that if I do something, she's going to do it. If I say something, she's going to say it. So I have a constant reminder, but not everybody has that, right? Um, so I, I don't, I don't know other than to say, I think it really starts with the coach and being aware and being mindful. And if you're not aware of what you're doing, then how are you don't know what you don't know. So how are you going to fix that? So, um, that's where I spend a lot of my work in is bringing that. And you're starting to see mindfulness practice and coaching is starting to really come out. I think we're on the verge of it exploding in the field. Um, so I really kind of want to turn people's attention to that. If you are, if you don't know what mindfulness is, or if you've kind of dabbled in it, I encourage you to kind of go ahead and get swept up in it because it's extreme. It's a simple, uh, strategy and it's so powerful to your practice and, and really just across in life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, like, tell me if you were working with a coach and trying to help them become more mindful, increase their mindfulness, what would you suggest that they do? Yeah. So mindfulness, I say it's simple, but then I say, um, at first it can be a challenge. So let's take the example. This is a really easy one because most people have experienced this. Have you ever been in a car and you kind of, you go and you know where you're going and you kind of space out. And then all of a sudden you're where you're supposed to be. Right. So you have lost that conscious processing. Um, you've slipped in that, into that automatic and it can be a little scary because you're like, what did I miss along the way? Um, but we start kind of with that daily routine life stuff. So instead of getting into the car this morning, I want to challenge you to, to pay attention to when you are not present. When is your mind wandering? And at first it's difficult because you realize that your mind, even in this conversation here and people listening to this now, I wonder how many times they've had a thought about something else that is not related to this conversation. So first you have to catch yourself doing that. And so we spend a lot of time just within that daily activity and conversation track when you're losing focus, when are you straying? Then we, we work on strategies of when you're straying, the strategy to get yourself back on track is to acknowledge I'm not paying attention. I'm over here. And then here's where I need to be. So acknowledge you're not there and then redirect your attention back where you need to be. And that's where sometimes you'll see focus, uh, focus words, trigger words come in. So we use those types of things. So it's a really kind of almost tedious process at first, maybe for the first couple of days, depending on how committed to the process the coach is. Uh, but then after I don't know, a week, just depending on the person, maybe even a couple of days, they can do it more automatically. And you realize that, wow, I'm straying like all the time and you don't have to be zero lasered in focus all the time, but there are specific instances where you need to be present in the moment, particularly in a practice when you're working on a skill and you're watching the same drill and all of a sudden you're thinking about dinner, you know? So, and, and that's a skill to, if you can help your athletes learn how to do that, it, it's powerful for them as well. So when do you need to be present? And in that moment, here's the key, present in the moment in a non-judgmental and a non-evaluative way. That's the key. You can be present, but you can be judging what I'm saying. You can be evaluating what I'm saying or yourself. 
So teaching yourself that one, I'm straying, I need to be here. Two, am I judging or evaluating? And if I am, how do or what can I say to myself to get myself to stop doing that so I can see with a clear lens? So it's kind of a little process at first. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. And you started to kind of get into it there with, you know, helping our athletes do the same. And so you're also a certified mental performance coach. You know, and I think that most coaches, if, if you had a conversation with them and asked them, Hey, how much of your sport would you say is mental? I think it's a, it's a decent percentage. Most coaches may, Oh, it's actually a really high percentage of my sport. It's, it's just, it's in their head. It's mental, but and I'm really guilty of this. When we look at our practice plan or the time we're spending with our teams, it's usually a negligible percent, if any, that we spend talking about or working on our athletes' mental performance. And I know, you know, most coaches, like they don't have the resources or the means to hire a mental performance coach to come in and do that work. And in some ways, like coaches, we're not necessarily equipped to do the work. But I'd love to know maybe some practical things that any coach could take and start to use with their team and with their athletes to help develop their players' mental performance. Sure. And before I get into that, let me just, let me just also say this, that, um, you know, with coach education within our program, we will teach some of that, right. And we have it threaded into a lot of our courses. So if you're coaching, you're thinking even the, just the graduate certificate, right. So you've got a master's degree, you don't need another one. You just want a certificate that gives you that extra layer. Um, the other thing is, you know, we hear, we hear coaches talk about mental toughness. We talk about the mental game. I think coaches, for the most part, understand that the mental game is important. But like you said, we do a lot of talking around it. So let me also clarify that the mental game is more than just motivational speeches. So what I see a lot of is coaches will say, Uh, we're going to talk about the mental game today, or I want to work on my mental game. And they'll go listen to a motivational speaker. And that has a place like we, we do need to, there is value in that. We do need to be motivated at times. um, And it kind of pumps you up. But like you said, we're lacking the actual strategies like, okay, I want to um, be more focused here. So I'm going to tell myself to be focused and I'm going to just yell at my athletes. You need to be focused. Why are you not focused? Well, what are some actual strategies that you can help them <laughs> that they can practice to be more focused? So that's where I live. Like I'm, um, I'm nuts and bolts. I want to get in there. So when I think about just a couple, and I actually will have an article coming out that I give my top eight mental performance strategies for coaches in the Sport Coach of America. Uh, that should be out in July on their website. But when I think about uh, the fundamentals of what lays the foundation for a strong mental game and what's the most, um, packs the biggest punch, right? It's the mindfulness piece to begin with. So I touched a little bit on that. So I always start with the mindfulness, bringing yourself and your athletes into awareness of when they're judging, when they're evaluating, et cetera. And so, um, and, and coaches can look mindfulness up. One of the biggest strategies that you can use for mindfulness, it's not just about redirecting when you're out of focus and you need to be paying attention. It's also about feeling when something could be off. Because when you're in a game, a lot of times you think something's off, but you can't pinpoint it or adrenaline's going too much, either in positive or ne- negative direction. You just need to hone it in, Right. So one drill that can help with that, and you'll see a lot of the elite um, teams do this, is a body scan. So teaching yourself and your athletes how to do a body scan. You can Google beginner's body scan, and it basically walks you through a script of what you can say to yourself, but also your athletes, and it stems in the meditation field. So I don't want coaches that kind of shy away from meditation to get freaked out. I'm not telling you to meditate, although it can have a lot of benefits. I'm telling you that the body scan comes from that meditation field. So if you Google it, you're going to see it in meditation. All right. So don't freak out. Just give it a chance. Um, But the body scan, what it does is it teaches coaches and athletes how to redirect their attention away from everything that's going on out here and pull it in. And and that's where you're zeroing in. um, How does my breath feel? Do I notice any tension? That kind of thing. That can come in handy in those high 
stress situations. All right. So learning mindfulness kind of for two different reasons, know when you're straying and evaluating and judging and being able to pull that focus internally when you need it. Okay. Uh, plus it's very relaxing and helps kind of set the stage for a performance. The other biggie that it has an immediate um, turnaround, I guess, is diaphragmatic breathing. So in research, especially in the medical field, you'll see the use of breathing techniques all of the time. Breathing techniques are used to, to manage pain. They're used in clinical treatments. So addiction, depression, you know, all those kinds of things. And they're used in performance. So diaphragmatic breathing is different than just taking a deep breath. Any of the singers or instrument players should be very familiar with diaphragmatic breathing. It's learning how to breathe from that diaphragm, which sits right underneath your lungs. So when you engage the diaphragm, it lifts the lungs up in a breath and it provides more oxygen to your brain. And it, you're going to immediately, when you do this the right way, you're going to immediately feel more relaxed. So the diaphragmatic breathing there's, there are three minute beginner videos that you can Google diaphragmatic breathing technique. So when I breathe from the diaphragm, I'm not going to see my shoulders go up and down. I'm not going to see my chest go up. It's just going to be right in here. So that belly breathing, right? You put that into your body scan or you can use it kind of just at any time. So when your athletes are up or about to get in the box, or you're about to, as a coach, go into a big game and you're kind of feeling that tension, two or three diaphragmatic breaths, pause, two or three diaphragmatic breaths. And it's going to help you get recentered and, and take a minute. So here's the key with diaphragmatic breathing is not only does it relax you and get more oxygen to your brain and help you just kind of stop for a second to reset and refocus. But if you're having the onset of a big emotional reaction, if you can take two or three diaphragmatic breaths, it creates a pause. So now you're giving yourself time to move through the emotion and not react and giving yourself time to respond in a more appropriate way or way that you want to. Okay. Um, one other technique, so I'll give you three. One other technique is something you may have heard is called a hype number. This one's really easy. It's just a scale. You can use any scale you want to. I usually use one to 10. So if I'm at a one, so this talks about performance, anxiety or performance kind of energy. Where do you want yourself to be? Where do you want your athletes to be during different times of practice, during uh, competition or even before games? And this gives you and your athletes a way to kind of say, hey, I'm at a two or you're at a two and you say that you need to be at like a five or a six or even a seven or eight with 10 being like bouncing off the walls. Like we just won the natty. Right. But, and I don't know how many times we really are going to be at a 10. <laughs> we might use that diaphragmatic breathing and bring us back down, but you give them a way to gauge you're here. I need you here or you're here and we got to get you back down here because you're out of your focus zone. So, you know, you go to your athletes and you say, Luke, what do you think a good hype number for you is like best game of your life? And so it takes a little bit of time for you to articulate, figure out where that number is and you work on it in practice. See, and here's the other thing you want to practice like you would in a game so hard to do. So if their hype numbers at like a three and you need them to be at a seven and they're practicing at a three, that's a good way for you to give them a, um, an indicator, a number that they can use just real quick. What's your height number? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, those are three awesome practical strategies. You know, I think as you were talking about that, one of the places that my mind went was something that I've done with the teams that I've coached is, is just taking time outside of practice in a classroom for us to essentially just come to agreement about how we're going to respond to different situations too. And so for example, things like when a ref makes a bad call or when we're missing shots or we're frustrated with the teammate and just before any of those things that inevitably are going to happen, happen, like we talk about how, and we let them talk about how they want to respond and, and then pairing those things with some of the things that you're talking about, where we can actually help 
help kids become more mindful of what's happening, how they want to respond, and then even help them reflect on when they mess up because they're inevitably, inevitably going to mess up, reflect on, hey, this is what we said we wanted to be. You know, where did we go wrong here? How, how could we do this differently the next time? I think, I think those things are just, yeah, so powerful. They're so, so powerful. And like you, like we said, we all recognize how important it is, what a big part it plays in performance of individuals and teams. But again, I think most coaches and myself included, we just don't really feel equipped to navigate it, or we've just never, never experienced it as athletes and haven't seen another coach do it. And so it's like, if you, you don't know what you don't know, it's hard to improve it, you know? Yeah. And I think some of it gets back to, you know, coaches are doing, are doing some things you're doing strategies, but you don't realize it, or you're just doing it because that's what you survived on, or you saw another coach do, and there's a name for it. And there's, there's a way to kind of shape that strategy up for it to be more effective for you. You just need the knowledge around it. Cause I mean, when you're talking about uh, how to respond to um, things that happen in a game, like what you were bringing up immediately, I thought, well, you can teach athletes focus and flush routines and how to use focal points to help bring them in, even as coaches. And so there's, there's all that kind of stuff out there. And I'll be honest with you. I was always interested in the psychology side of things. Hence why I went into the sports psychology field. And I did that as a coach because one, this was my, um, I was coaching full-time, my first position. I wanted to be a better coach. And I thought, well, sports psych, if I can understand the mental game and how to teach that to athletes, I'm going to be a better coach. And it did help me, but it was really interesting because it wasn't until I went through all the research behind what went into a master's thesis and then a dissertation. And then by that time I was done coaching that I really came full circle. Like if I were to go back into coaching right now, I guarantee you, I would be 100% better. But even when you share this information with coaches, it takes time for them to make the connections and to integrate it consistently. So it's not like a quick fix sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's learning, right? Like we, we have to try to apply and reevaluate and reflect. You mentioned it there, but I'd love for you to talk more about your master's thesis and a lot of the work around your dissertation about the expectation performance process. Yeah. What, what were your findings and how should it inform our coaching? Yes. Yeah, so it, it was really interesting. I started that work because, as I said, I was actively coaching during both of those and I was seeing a lot of um, things going on around me that I thought, why is this athlete getting this sort of treatment and behavior versus it was more, it was beyond, we're just trying to communicate based on how this athlete communicates, right? We're not, it was beyond that. And so I knew that I wanted to know more about that because I didn't want to do that. I wanted every athlete that I came in contact with, I wanted to give my true self and give them the attention that they deserve and meet them where they were. So I started studying this expectation performance process, which basically is a self-fulfilling prophecy within the sports field, right? So if I think something's going to happen, then a lot of times it turns out that it does happen, or at least that's kind of the general thought about it. What really happens in a process like that is if I think something is going to happen and it's a, it, it's a negative something that I think is going to happen, that initial thought is usually based off of false information. So it's incorrect information. I, as the coach, have looked at this athlete and I have misinterpreted what they have done. So maybe an athlete comes to, uh, to practice that day or to a tryout and they're kind of sulking, they're not hustling. And immediately I expect that athlete to not do well. Like, I don't like what I'm reading here. So I don't think you're going to do well. And what, will, what can happen is because of that, I may not speak to that athlete as much. I may give that athlete a different type of feedback. So I may be more um, punitive or sometimes even condescending, depending on who, you know, how you communicate as a coach. And this is like an extreme example, all right? 
So then the athlete goes through tryouts or goes through practice and guess what? They don't perform well. And so at the end of that day, I think, well, I was right as a coach, like that athlete just doesn't have it. I knew I didn't like it. And, you know, that kind of thing. And the athlete doesn't make the team or doesn't come back or whatever, doesn't get playing time. When in reality, what I don't know as a coach is maybe that athlete was sick and they showed up to practice and they showed up, they didn't want to not be there, but they showed up anyway and they just weren't feeling well. Or that morning, something happened, their dog passed away or, you know, something, something affected that athlete. But instead of me basing my expectation off of what I saw about their performance or kind of other cues around, or maybe something else I knew about that athlete, I base it off of false information of my read. That can happen. It only, the self-fulfilling prophecy usually happens in a negative kind of kind of situation. Okay. If I base my information off of correct cues that I see and correct information, which is why it's important for me to gather information from multiple sources, then um, it's not a big deal. You know, the, it goes, things go about the way that you're supposed to go about. So what I found in this, these two studies in collegiate athletes, uh, the first, my master's thesis was in competitive kind of anywhere from competitive to travel ball age athletes. And then my dissertation was in collegiate athletes. Um, and what I found is that the expectation process is present. So coaches do treat athletes differently and athletes perceive even the most positively rated coaches still treat athletes a little bit differently based on how well that coach thinks that that athlete is going to perform. So even some of the best coaches in the country they are going to have specific behaviors and ways they give feedback that distinguishes at least the athletes perceive, even the athletes that perform well based off of that coach, even those athletes pick up on it. So some of those behaviors are mostly it was nonverbals. Um, one of the biggest things that came out was, and now it's, it's kind of, it's very well known, but um, ignoring ignoring an athlete or their performance. So I can't, when I played, if I was in the box, the hitting the batter's box and I took a strike or I struck out and I looked down at my coach, guess what? My coach wouldn't look at me. She'd turn her head because she was mad and you know, she was trying to whatever. And you go in the dugout and you wouldn't get any feedback whatsoever. So ignoring behavior, even like that can kill an athlete's motivation to play, which then it trickles over into confidence. So even when an athlete does something that you don't like, you need to give some sort of acknowledgement. And maybe that acknowledgement is just making eye, eye contact with them. Okay. And when those types of behaviors, that was by far the biggest clear, concise, and precise or direct communication was one of the, the biggest influencers of increasing motivation and confidence and ignoring behavior was the opposite. So that was kind of the big thing is every coach is perceived to treat athletes even just a little bit differently and uh, clear, concise, direct communication is a plus ignoring behavior is a negative. That's really good. Wow. I'm, I'm just processing through that as you're talking about it and reflecting on my own coaching and yeah, there's, I remember that as an athlete for sure. I also can probably identify, you know, times or, or athletes that have probably felt that for me. And yeah, I think that's, man, that's so, that's so powerful and profound for us to consider in our coaching. And, you know, I don't necessarily, I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing that they perceive that we treat some athletes differently because we probably should be treating some athletes differently just based on who they are individually. Obviously, I, I would hope that we're making such an effort and communicating clearly where they know, Hey, we, we, we try to treat you all fairly, but that doesn't always mean that things are equal, right? Like we can be fair, but recognize that we're all different here. And sometimes we need to, as the coaches approach you in different ways, but yeah, I, I think it is so important for us to deeply consider, you know, how do we avoid create an environment where our athletes feel like we play favorites based on their performance. 
because the message that sends is your value to me is tied to your performance here. And I hope that that's not what we actually believe as coaches um, because there's all sorts of issues that happen when, yeah, our athletes feel like their performance is what's going to um, garner our attention or, or somehow validate their worthiness of being part of our team. The other thing I would say too, is when you're talking about self-fulfilling prophecies, I think, and I do this a lot, that it happens not, not just in the negative, but in the positive too. So, you know, I, I see an athlete do something to perform something, or I'm just told something about an athlete. And then now all of a sudden I just see a bunch of things that reinforce that, you know, I had, we had a, I had a player this past season that I'd seen him play a little bit been told about him. And I mean, he was a really talented point guard, really good ball handler. But then all of a sudden I I was watching for it. I saw all the things. Whereas, you know, a player where I was told, you know, this, this guy, yeah, he's not really going to play for you. Uh, He's, he's not great at whatever X, Y, Z. Well then, yeah, I saw all of those things too. And so I was just thinking about, man, how important it is for us to be really cognizant of the information we're taking in about kids and the labels that other people are giving them and making sure that we're not letting that totally skew the way that we're observing and, and seeing things. I think that's so powerful and profound. Yeah. And I think this is why you're starting to see this um, mindful coaching come in because like you just had this moment of awareness. Like I, huh, <laughs> I realized this, this, and that. And teaching you how to be aware of when you're having those judgmental and evaluative thoughts when you shouldn't be. Now, sometimes you have to be because that's the nature of coaching, right? But when you shouldn't be, I need to see this performance for what it is. And then also understanding I need other types of information to help me form this decision. But there's a time and a place for me to review that information. So what does that look like? I want to back up really quick because you said something really interesting and it shouldn't be interesting to you because you're a teacher. But when we're talking about treating athletes differently, I love how you switched it to fair. And you also talked about differentiation. So you know that term. In the classroom, we have to differentiate. It's hard. It's hard. But we have to differentiate how we teach and deliver uh, information to students because of where they are and how they learn. It is no different for athletes. So when you have this conversation with athletes, one, if you are a mindful coach and you're aware of when you may be doing something or not, and you can not judge and evaluate. And two, if you can be clear and concise and give clear expectations to your athletes and teach them, listen, we want to be fair, but fair may look different. And here's why and teach them about what differentiation is. Now with younger athletes that, I don't know if that would be harder or easier, I guess it just depends on how you articulate that. But I think if you are uh, consistent in that message, then eventually the athletes will get it. And if you create an open relationship with them, then they can come to you and ask, hey, I noticed that you did this for Susie and you didn't do this for me. Why is that? And you may say, because I've tried that with you and you didn't respond well. I found that you respond better when I do this. Or maybe have that conversation up front so that when you do do something different and it looks different, they understand, okay, that's because this is what gets to me type thing. Yeah, that's really good. I've got a couple of rapid fire questions for you. I just want to hear the first thing that come to your mind. And then I'll give you a couple of minutes to share about FSU coach and how people can connect. Here's my First one, I know I'm successful as a coach when, and I know you're not currently coaching anymore, but maybe reflecting on your coaching. (laughs) I know I'm successful as a coach when I have athletes that reach out to me years later and say, I finally get it. (laughs) That's awesome. Great answer. The most fun part of coaching is? The most fun part of coaching is being able to see that aha moment when the light bulb goes off. Absolutely. I love that. I wish I would have known blank before I started coaching. (laughs) I wish I would have known everything we talked about today. (laughs) Yeah. I wish that I would have known 
more about myself and been more comfortable in my skin before I started coaching. That's good. That's really good. Well, Dr. Bunning, this has been awesome. Share with uh, the listeners how they can connect with you, learn more about FSU Coach um, and all that stuff. Yeah, thank you. So you can follow me on Twitter. I'm actually pretty funny, but I put out some mental performance stuff and coaching stuff. And uh, my handle is at Dr. Bunning at Dr. B as in boy U N I N G. And then you can check out FSU Coach. We have a website fsu-coach.fsu.edu, and they'll tell you more about our certificate programs and our master's degree. And then we have a YouTube channel as well. So you can Google us or search for us on YouTube, FSU Coach. And Dr. Tim Baghurst has done uh, over a hundred and something interviews with various coaches from across the world. And it's pretty neat. So you can follow us that way. Um, My email is m.bunning at fsu.edu. I am happy to discuss any of this. I love connecting and engaging. And as you can tell, I can talk about mental performance and coaching all day long. So uh, let me know if I can help. Awesome. Dr. Bunning, thanks again. This was awesome. And I know it'll serve a lot of coaches. So I appreciate your time a ton. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Coaches, thanks for listening to this episode. And thanks again to Dr. Bunning for coming on to the podcast. You can check out more about FSU Coach and all the links that she mentioned in the show details. If you're not already, you can hop on my email list and get the podcast notes from this episode or any episode of the podcast at coachesclubpod.com. And if you're interested in being part of the Coaches Club community, go to coachesclub.community to learn more or schedule a free call to talk with me. And don't forget to sign up for the next round of book clubs at cgtbookclubs.com. Those book clubs kick off at the end of this month. Thanks for listening to the Coaches Club podcast powered by Transform Sport where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training. 